happy Easter to you all. Uh, you'll have lines at the end. Your line is, I'm going to say, he is risen, and you're going to say, he is risen indeed. Okay, I'll prepare you for that. If you want to write that down, um, just remember that you will have lines uh, in this message. We, as I said, we very much now approach the, um, the, the beating heart of this letter. And I, and I love that phrase, the phrase that, that one of the great scholars on this letter uh, uses to talk about this. And you probably even heard it as Bino was reading, that there's a certain pacing, there's a certain uh, rhythm to these verses that very much suggests that it's a poem of some kind. And scholars, uh, <laughs> in my opinion, kind of waste all kinds of ink arguing, is it something that Paul wrote? Is it something from the early church? Whatever it is, it's beautiful, it's profound. And as art is supposed to do, at its best, this poem works on several different levels. There's something that poetry does in terms of working in different ways, speaking into different things that sometimes mere prose, just saying the thing, can't quite capture. And that's how I want you to be thinking about this, is as we go through it, the, the number of things that this poem is responding to and doing. The most important thing to understand about this is actually where it shows up in the letter, which if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, it, it actually serves as, at least on face value, kind of surface level, it very much serves as an example of the kinds of ways the writer is calling these Christians to live in community with each other. Starting all the way back in chapter 1 at verse 27, this poem belongs with, what's with the general idea that's introduced way back in verse 27, where the Apostle Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life. Remember, that's that political, it sounds like the, the original word in the original language sounds like politics. It's this whole argument he's making that I won't re-preach uh, two weeks of sermons, but this whole argument he's making that the way of figuring out life together, your politics together as the people of God, needs to be distinct from the world. And it needs to be worthy of the message that you are proclaiming with your mouths, your manner of life, your deeds together, your way of being needs to be in accord. Your politics need to reflect your message. Your politics, I really like this concept, is that one of the ways in which this poem functions is it's offering a master story within which these followers of Jesus are called to kind of see their own stories. What is the master story of your life? Fundamentally, what do you believe your life is about and for? Fundamentally, what do you believe existence is about and for? Fundamentally, what do you believe human beings are about and for? And the Apostle Paul's answer is so beautifully captured in just a few stanzas of this beautiful poem. And he puts it here in this book to say, if this is, the poem kind of begs the question, if this is what you believe is fundamentally what the world and human beings are about, therefore you should live in the way that I'm calling you to live. And so it functions as this kind of uh, moral example. But it's also functioning as the source 
of that moral example, as the fundamental why. So it's functioning both as the why behind how we should live, but it's also functioning as how we should live. You're already probably feeling some of the complexity of how this poem works in this book. If you remember last week, um, he starts with these verses at the beginning of, of chapter 2 that I'll just go ahead and read. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now this, this is the transitional verse, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And last week we said this word mind is not saying think the exact same things about everything. Instead, this idea of have the same mind is more fully captured by, in our language, concepts like have this mindset, have this general posture towards things. Have this, and I said probably my, my favorite way to conjure this in English is have this mentality among yourselves which is yours because you are in Christ. This mentality flows from your identity as those who have been brought into the life of Christ, as those who have put your faith in him, said, yes, his death, his resurrection, what we're celebrating this weekend are things that I want personally applied to my life. He says, this therefore becomes your posture if that's your fundamental identity. Have this mind, mindset, mentality, posture, which is yours as someone who is in Christ. And now our passage itself, who, that's Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Very, very important. For those of you who write in your Bibles, it's very important for you to circle the word though. Who though he was in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And why you're circling that, if you're a writer in your Bible, is because that word actually isn't there in the original text. It's a translation. It's an interpretation. It's a guess at what that is, is communicating those words there. The word that is actually there in the original language is just the word being. It's just being. But it's this thing, and I won't go into grammar because it's Easter Sunday, and some of you are like, my goodness, we're already deep in this. But it's a thing called a participle, and you have to decide how a participle is functioning in a sentence. And there's two options here. I'm going to go for it. Why not? There's two options here. There's a causative participle, and there's a concessive participle. One of the kids asked me, will I like the sermon? I was like, yeah, you'll love it. She already left. Um, what, a, what a concessive is, is, is how it's chosen to be interpreted here. Being, in other words, in spite of the fact that he was God, he chose to do what's described here. The other is causative. Because he is God, he chose what he does here. And a lot of the interpretation of this passage hangs on which is it. 
Is it in spite of the fact that he was, as it's called here, in the form of God? And that's really speaking of, and look, we as Christians and we at Jacob's Well, we believe wholeheartedly that Jesus was fully God, fully part of, of the divine trinity. But actually the emphasis here in saying he was in the form of God is more so talking about his, um, his sort of outer, the word that's used here is, is speaking of, of his outer appearance. It was actually a word that's more often used to speak of, of the clothes someone wears. He was in the clothes of God. He, was, he had the outer appearance of God. He had the radiance, the splendor, all of the trappings externally, if you saw him, of God. And yet, he considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped at. And the concept that's being gotten at there. Is, is having all of this being true of himself, he did not use it. Almost all modern interpreters say that this next phrase is really talking about he refused to use all of those trappings of his godness for his own advantage. So literally a word, that, this word, it's not a thing to be grasped, is, is the word for um, a bounty that you would get from a robbery. It's like used of pirates and things, like pirate's booty, basically. And it's saying... Jesus refused to use everything that he had, all of the riches and privileges and rights that he had as God. He refused to use them as though they were his for the taking and for his advantage. Instead, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And if your Bible is like mine, there's a little number next to servant. And if you go down there, mine says bond servant. That's because it's a light translation. It's the word for slave. And modern translators are very hesitant to translate it that way because of all of the, the associations with, with modern slavery, with chattel slavery, even in our country. But that's the word that's being used here. In what sense does Jesus empty himself? This is not a, a theology lecture, though it might feel like it already, but um, this is not him emptying himself of divinity. This is emptying himself by taking the form of a slave, as, as one of my favorite professors in seminary would put it. He said, this is subtraction by addition. This is subtraction by addition. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, fill in your omni, omnicompetent, right? Binds himself to a single human body. Limits himself. Subtracts something by taking on something, namely human form. It is Jesus choosing. Just take one of those, omnipresent, right? Like God is everywhere at all times. Jesus was not everywhere. Jesus of Nazareth in his incarnation, in flesh, when he came and put on human, he was not everywhere all at once, right? There was, this, there was this binding that Jesus experienced. He was living one human life. And he did it in order to serve. And it doesn't say who he's a slave of. It doesn't say who he's a servant of. And I think that that's because this also, as good art does, works on many different levels. Of course, he's serving his father, as we find out in the next verse, being obedient to what God has asked of him. But in the grandest sense, he is serving every single one of us. 
in what he does on the cross. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God all the way until the end, all the way until that bitter end of the cross, the night before which he is begging his father, saying, if there's any other way, and yet his agony ends with the declaration, maybe the most important words ever uttered in human history, not my will, Father, but yours be done. He is obedient to the point of death. We have said that to really understand this letter, you have to understand the cultural context within which it is written to. We said that that is the Roman Empire, and that is specifically important because Philippi was this thing called a Roman colony, this outpost of the Roman Empire in which, though it is uh, literally a, a country away, miles and miles away from Rome itself, because it's a colony of Rome, it's as though you're in Rome by setting foot in this city of Philippi. And, so, and, and it was to be an outpost of Roman culture and customs and every single way in which things were done in the epicenter of this empire was to be thickly true in this, in this city. And one of the ways that we talked about it was talking about this, the cursus honorum, which sounds like something from Harry Potter, but it's not. Um, it's, this, it's this Latin phrase that speaks of, this is the, you could think of it this way, this is the master story of the Roman Empire. What does life exist for? What do human beings exist for? We exist for honor. And that all of life is a quest for honor, is a quest to get as much renown and recognition and fame and appreciation and applause and admiration from others as possible. And all of Roman society was fundamentally organized around this quest for honor such that you had an entire group of people who were known as elites and then non-elites, and then you even had substrata within those groups. You had rankings within this, and people would spend a lifetime just trying to jump one of these, much less to go from a non-elite to an elite. And we've seen a number of ways in which the Apostle Paul is speaking into this community and saying, this is not to be how you fundamentally understand the purpose of your lives. And he says, but maybe you won't fully understand how much this goes against what God wants for you until you realize how opposite what Jesus has done to this. And if Jesus is God in flesh, if Jesus is the one who shows us what it actually means to be a human being fully alive, then we should take serious heed of the way in which he conducted his life. And in direct opposition to this, put up that next slide, Rachel. Oh, this is a very angry looking man named Pliny. Um, Pliny was a Roman senator. Um, feels like when you're talking about the Roman Empire, you have to talk with a British accent. I have no idea why. But um, Pliny uh, was a Roman senator, and he said, it is more uglifying to lose honor than never to have had it at all. Contrast that with what we just read, which is this. Next slide. One great, uh, one of the people who has dedicated uh, their scholarly lives to, to the study of Philippians calls this whole poem the cursus pedorum. Pedorum being <laughs> basically the exact opposite word of honor. 
um, a quest of humiliation, a quest of, uh, I think the exact translation is ignominies, um, the quest of humiliations. Because look, we tend to emphasize the uniqueness of Christ's death because of the fact that he came and he took on sin and therefore it was utterly unique in its emotional weight that he took on. It's utterly unique in the in the fact that not only was he dying of the curse of sin, but he was the curse itself. But I think what's primarily emphasized in this poem for the purposes that the Apostle Paul is writing is the utter uniqueness of the choice Jesus makes not only to not run the race for honor, not only not to make his life fundamentally about the quest for honor, but the unbelievable distinctiveness with which he gladly chooses to work his way intentionally down the order of honor. You're talking about one who goes from divinity to becoming a human being, which is a humbling unto itself. That human being then chooses to put himself, what was the very last category two slides ago? In the position, the socio economic position that was lowest at that time. There was only one thing worse than a slave. That was a slave hanging on a cross. This is true in Rome. This is true in every culture. This is where Jesus chose to go. verse 9. What's the first word in verse 9? Therefore. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because this is the path that Jesus chose, God, therefore, because of it, gives Jesus the name that is above every name, which if you look at the structure of this, the name that's specifically being spoken there seems to be the name Lord. But he hands over this title, this office of Lord, to the Son, which we've said that every time that Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament, it's a declaration that who is not? Who? Caesar. Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar is not. In other words, in absolute contradiction, in absolute critique, of the way that culture was set up at that time. God says Caesar is not Lord, though Caesar is the one who has perfectly conquered the cursus honorum. He has climbed the ladder. He has made it all the way up to where human and divine seem to touch. He is not Lord. Instead, it's the one who intentionally 
ran the other direction as Caesar was running this direction, who went down instead of going up, who actually deserves the title of Lord. You see, one of the ways in which this poem is functioning is it's showing us, because normally, normally we think, if we think at all about a statement like this, and I'm talking especially to people who have been around church, been around Christian things for a while, normally we think of the statement, Jesus is Lord, as fundamentally uh, being the same as Jesus is God. And while that's true, while both those statements are true, what's at least going on here, and I think going on in a lot of the New Testament, is that actually declaring that Jesus is Lord says more about who he is as a human being than who he is as God, in this sense. Now, you would have really have to have been around Jacob's well for a while to, to catch this, but I'm, I'm, I'm asking some of you who have been to, to help me out here. The human story, the story of the scriptures, the, the story that is told to explain who we are as human beings, according to this book, begins with God making human beings and giving them a specific role in the world. And that role is to bear the image of God. And what it means to bear the image of God is not fundamentally about having certain traits that are similar to God's, though that's, again, that's a very true thing. What it means to bear the image of God is to have a certain function in this world. And that function is to represent God in the world and to represent him by submitting yourself to him in obedience, by obeying who God is, not to be the one in charge, but perfectly obeying he, who he calls you to be, and then loving and serving the creation that he has sent us into. We are to submit to God. We're to be under God, but then have, to, to use the, the word that Genesis used, dominion over the world. In other words, to bless the world, to be a blessing to the world, to be a servant to the world. Instead, what actually happens in the human story is that these people, I look like there'd be a whiteboard up here, but I wish I had a whiteboard. Um, instead, people who were made of dust, who were to submit themselves to God, instead said, I would rather be God. I would rather be in that position. I would rather be the one who decides what's right and wrong in my life. I would rather be the arbiter of what's good for me and they put themselves in the position of God. And in so doing, God has no choice but to humble them, to punish them by separating them from the life that they were meant to live as image bearers. He sends them out. He casts them out of his perfect presence because in his holiness and his goodness, he could not let us be other than what he created us to be. And so his graciousness is what sent Adam and Eve out of the garden because he says, you must learn that this is not the way that life is supposed to be. And not only do human beings suffer, but the world suffers because of that. And death and the curse is introduced into the story because human beings made of dust tried to make ourselves God and ultimately ended up in a lower place than even we began. Now you have one who was God, who was in the form of God, who had all the trappings and responsibilities of God, who humbled himself all the way down into the dust and mud and dirt and curse, who was obedient unto death itself, 
who perfectly obeyed God so that the world might flourish. Do you know who we're looking at? We're looking at a second and better and perfect Adam. That's what's going on here. We're looking at, that means nothing to you, we're looking at a human being finally being what a human being was created for. Jesus was not something other than human. He was not superhuman. He was not subhuman. He was what a human being was always meant to be. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that was above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, not at the name of Caesar, not at the name of the powers of this world, but at the name of Jesus, the true human being, the worthy one, the worthy one to be followed, the one who actually fulfilled what human beings were meant for, might receive the worship and honor and admiration of the entire creation. Working on another level, though. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. Actually, I put it in a slide. Isaiah is one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, talking about what God is going to do when he intervenes in this human story, when he makes right all that's gone wrong. And this shows up right in the middle of that. This is in Isaiah chapter 45. This is God speaking. He says, for thus says the who? Lord. Whenever you see capitalized L-O-R-D in an English translation of the Old Testament, it's, it's most of the time translating the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, this, this four-letter uh, four-letter derivation of the name of God. That makes its way into Greek language as the word Lord, which is kurios. But here, this is, this is Yahweh speaking. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. God is our only hope, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Back to Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Today we celebrate the resurrection. What does the resurrection mean? What is the meaning of the resurrection? Paul is largely getting at that here in these last couple verses. We've already said the resurrection, that Jesus being exalted, conquering death, is about God's declaration that he is the human being that we could not be. But it is also unmistakably his declaration that the one who is the human being we could not be was also the one and only God, in whom alone is salvation. 
by giving Jesus the name Lord, it is unmistakable, right? And in some ways, this is what's beautiful about this poem, in some ways, if you're reading this as a primarily Greek person, primarily familiar with, with Roman culture and all that stuff, you're hearing that first bit really emphasized. If you're coming from a Jewish background, listening to this, especially in the first century, and you hear that Yahweh has shared his name, Lord, with someone, it's just as scandalous as the declaration, Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar is not. This is the enormous truth. Okay. Back to the beginning. So is it, although he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God, but did all these things to humble himself, or is it because he was in the form of God? What do you think? It's both. It's both. It's and. I won't trick anyone. Not on Easter Sunday. I'll go with probably the greatest living New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, who says, this is the beautiful tension of that first word in this poem. Is that both work? Although he was in the form of God, contrary to everything that we normally think and believe about the gods, about what divinity is, this is what he did. And I wonder, as you sit here, what your image of God is. There, there might be nothing more important about you than who you believe God to be. Contrary to all of that, right? Sometimes what we do, um, maybe some of you are skeptical of faith. Maybe, maybe some of you um, are here because you, know, you feel like it's the right thing to do on a Sunday. And you're just not sure about God. And a lot of time what we do, even as Christians, is we start with the concept of God and then we move to Jesus and we say, does it make sense that Jesus is God? Whereas I think what this is saying is, although Jesus was in all the trappings of God, in fact, shared the very name of God with divinity, who he is runs counter, I can almost guarantee you, to the vast majority of expectations and assumptions that you've made about who God is. Now, I'd say that primarily because of the second one. What does it mean, and this one I think is often for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while. What does it mean to say that because Jesus was in the form of God, that he did all of this, that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of a humiliating, shameful death. Right? New Testament says that Jesus went to the cross despising its shame aware of the shamefulness of it. What does it mean that he did this precisely because he was God? That this is Jesus at his most God-like. This is God at his most God-like. That who God fundamentally is, is self-giving love for the flourishing of others. Because here's what I think we can get wrong is we can believe that when it says something like, although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. We can think, we, we get this weird image, and I'm going to sort of overstate it, but we get this weird image that it's like God the Father, God, scary God, mean God, upset God, sends Jesus, and now that Jesus is out of the house, he's sort of like, I'm going to do things different. I'm, I'm a sweetheart. And... <laughs> 
now that like dad's eyes aren't on me, now I'm going to go and actually be full of grace. I'm actually going to go and I'm going to be known fundamentally by my love for others. I'm going to go and I'm going to make myself a servant. I'm going to be willing to humiliate myself, to put my perfect name, to have it smeared in the mud so that others might live and flourish. And then God the Father, having seen all this, kind of goes, well, that was different, son. Anybody resonate with this a little bit? I resonate with this. Therefore, God says, I'm barely worthy of being God. That, you're doing a way better job demonstrating who I am. What that creates is this bizarre conflict in the Godhead where you have anger and bitterness and judgment over here, and then you have sweetheart Jesus over here. And it makes it seem as though Jesus saved us from God. When the clear teaching all the way back in the Old Testament, right? Those are Old Testament words, is Jesus does not save us from God. He saves us as God. This is who God is. This is what divinity fundamentally is. And the resurrection is God's death. It is not a reward for Jesus. It is not a well done. It is a, I love this word for the resurrection. It is a vindication that Jesus has perfectly done what the Father sent him to do. It is a vindication of Jesus' humanity. It is God's way of saying, this is what a human being was for. It was for the good of others. That love is supposed to be what flows from a human being rather than complicity in the curse that we see all around us. But it is also God's vindication of Jesus as God. This is who I am. And I am more powerful than all of the results of what you have done in making the world such as it is in its brokenness. But I am a savior who loves you enough to pursue you from the foundation of the world, to pursue your good in spite of your unworthiness of it. You see, the resurrection means nothing if it doesn't at least mean that the brokenness of this world will not have the final say in the master story that is actually true of this world. Because that's where we're headed. The resurrection, which is over our shoulders, maybe speaks most powerfully to what's ahead of us. Because one day what's true in the resurrection will be applied to the four corners of the earth. And death and mourning and sin and tears will be no more because the one who is worthy is sitting on the throne. The one who is worthy will come and apply his reign and rule to every square inch of this earth. What does this mean for us? I came across something in the New York Times of all places, a wonderful um, columnist, great faithful Christian named Esau McCauley, who's been writing a, a column for the, for the New York Times, and it's such a beautiful witness. And he's talking about Easter and the resurrection, and he's speaking from the black Christian experience. And one of the things that he says about it is he says, 
the depiction of the afterlife in which we live apart from our bodies. Now, what he's getting at here is that the resurrection is nothing if it's not bodily resurrection. If Jesus' broken, battered, mutilated body does not itself come back to life, then the resurrection loses a lot of its substance and content. If a black body can be hanged from a tree and burned, never to be restored again, what kind of victory is the survival of a soul? The mob then would be able to take something that even God cannot restore. And he speaks of a cousin who died of an illness. If my cousin's body can be ravaged by disease and lost to her forever, does that not render illness more powerful than God? He's talking about what does the resurrection mean when we look around in the world and we see grave injustice, bitter injustice, horrible injustice. And what do we do in the midst of real sorrow and loss? He says, if therefore Jesus was not raised, right? Look, I want to be the guy who goes back to this every single time I'm up here, but this is my first Easter without my mom. My mom died a month ago, and sorry, but I've been thinking about her a lot. What does the resurrection mean, right? My mom was a woman who loved Jesus, believed that these things were true. And a couple things came to mind as, as I was reflect, reflecting even preparing for this is there's one time where my sister and I were leaving the hospital after spending time with my mom in hospice and it's just my sister and I and she turned to me and she said, um, Scott, what is this doing to your faith? Like, what do you really believe is about to happen to mom? You know? And I turned to her and I said, um, and this is not to make much of, of my faith, um, at all. This is not to make me the hero of the story, because believe me, I've had plenty of bitterness and doubt and all that. But I said to her, I really do believe that mom will be with Jesus. And I really do believe that this is not the end of her story. I think I like, really believe that. This year, you know, I grew up as a Christian. It's probably my 40th Easter Sunday. And I wonder if that's about how long it takes for this stuff where you're like, yeah, I really believe this. My big sister, who's one of my heroes in life, she turned to me and she said, I think I'm in the same place. Now, we were saying this after the most violent tears we've ever cried, after the, the, the anger, frankly, of watching my mom just waste away to cancer. But there was something that kept ringing in my mind, which is it's something that the Apostle Paul says. He says, if Christ has not been raised bodily, we Christians are to be pitied more than anyone. And I thought, that conversation is that. Because that's pitiful. We should feel sorry for us. Those sweet, misguided, unenlightened, non-modern, magical thinking people. Right? My mom, she would, um, there, there were a couple times where she would be in the bed and she'd be asleep for a while. She was on the morphine drip. And she'd open her eyes and we'd watch her hands kind of go like this. And finally, after she did it once, my sister said, Mom, what's going on? She kind of leaned in, and my mom said, I really thought I was going to wake up in heaven. And, and instead, it'd be like my dad leaning over. <laughs> and, um, and what my mom said my mom was really um, 
honest at the end about her pain. She's in a lot of pain. And she was really honest. And anyone who would come in the room should be really honest. Yeah, I'm in pain. How you doing? How you doing, Debbie? You in pain? Yeah, I'm in pain. And um, she felt it. But she was also just as adamant to tell as many people as she could. But she would say, but I'm not afraid. Say, I'm not afraid. They'd say, what do you mean? Say, I'm not afraid because this isn't, this isn't it. This isn't the end of my story. This isn't going to win. This pain. This is what the resurrection is. It doesn't at all minimize your pain and your loss and your sorrow. I don't know why you would want to believe in a God who has not experienced the ugliness and the degradation of death itself. Those final days were beautiful and sacred in certain ways. They were awful in other ways. And I found myself in moments saying, God, if you hadn't gone through this, right? Good Friday is more precious to me because of the ugliness of it as weird as that sounds. And it doesn't minimize that, right? The whole scriptures are full of people crying out in pain and anguish and saying, this hurts, this hurts. And do you know we don't have a heavenly father who says, no, it doesn't. He says, I know it hurts. It's why he lets half the songbook of, of the Old Testament, the Psalms, be laments. It hurts, it hurts. I'm confused, I'm sad, I'm in doubt. Jesus himself let himself hurt. I thirst, he said on the cross. Don't get it twisted. Just because Jesus knew he was going to die doesn't mean it didn't hurt. He was in pain and anguish. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder if the one time why we see Jesus afraid. Do you know that the most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. It's not don't hurt. It's not get over it already. It's don't be afraid. You know the one time we see Jesus genuinely afraid? It's in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating blood. Why is he afraid? Because what's in front of him, he gets a sense of, is forsakenness from God, separation from the Father. So he's afraid. Do you know why we're called to not be afraid? Because though we might subjectively experience Garden of Eden, Though that might be how we feel in a moment, is rejected and abandoned and forsaken by God, what Jesus did actually guarantees that that will never actually be true for us. Are you following what I'm saying? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that when, those word, when we're allowed to utter those words and repeat them, what was objectively true for Jesus, the Father turned his face away. His forsake, he became sin and a curse is no longer what's true of you, even in life's worst moments. I'm in pain. This hurts. I'm sad. I feel the enormity of the loss. And yet God can have the audacity to say, yet fear not. Fear not. Because the very worst thing that has happened to you will not have the victory one day. Because if the resurrection means anything, it means there is nothing this world can take away that God is not powerful enough to restore. That's whatever you've lost and grieved. That's whatever has been done to you. That's whatever you've done. 
God can take the very worst thing you've gone, done, can take your addiction, can take all of those things. He will be victorious over it. Right? What does that mean for us right now? Right now means he's given us the spirit. Can I just say this? I feel compelled to say this quickly. What does it mean for us right now? The thing that we're primarily told the spirit of God, his presence in us does now, is it doesn't take away every sickness. It doesn't make grief go away. It doesn't make sin suddenly disappear from your, your desires. Instead, what it does is in fits and starts, it begins to give us a sense of this will not last always. It says that what the Spirit is, is it's a down payment. It's a glimpse. It's, it's the coming attractions of what's ahead. And so you know what the Spirit, the, the one thing that it says the Spirit actually speaks, the one sound it makes, it says it groans within us. If you're groaning today, that is God groaning in you. And it is him groaning saying, I know you're in pain. I know it hurts. I know you're sad. I know you've lost. I know the guilt and the shame that you're experiencing. But I'm groaning with you because there's a day coming. I'm not groaning in hopelessness. I'm groaning in hope. I just want it to come already. This is why the fundamental declaration of a Christian is, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Make the grown reality in my life. I said you had lines. All of this is nuts, right? It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. We really believe he was dead and then he wasn't dead anymore. It's like really what we believe. Some of you in here really believe that. You really believe that. And maybe, maybe it was the first time, maybe you were one of those, boom, just faith came. Maybe it was the 20th time, maybe it was the 50th time. Maybe this is the first time where you're like, man, I've heard this before, but holy cow. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to say he is risen. I just want you to turn to someone, and I want you to say to them, not to me, he is risen indeed. Let me do that. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. Great scholar of the last century said, if Christ has been raised, nothing else matters. If Christ has not been raised, nothing else matters. Which will it be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.